Welcome to Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. So my guess is that many of our listeners know this feeling. You have a sibling, an uncle, a friend, and you just cannot see eye to eye on politics. In fact, maybe this election has had a truly negative impact on your relationship. If nothing else, you've just stopped talking, and the silence can feel pretty thick right now. Tanya Israel is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and she thinks that we can do better than this. She's a communication expert with decades of experience working with people who have differing opinions. In her new book called Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide, she provides some psychological tools and describes why it's especially important to listen. Yes, just listen. Well, Tanya Israel, welcome to Life Examined. Delighted to be here. You have worked so much um, uh, just bringing people together from different backgrounds, from different political positions. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your earlier past. I know there was a really formative experience you had, which was working on a question of pro-life versus pro-choice. This was in the 90s. Can you just give us a short snippet of how that kind of changed your life and your career? Absolutely. Back in the 90s, I... uh started this group because I had heard about a similar group in St. Louis. I started a group uh, to bring together pro-choice and pro-life people to have dialogue with each other. I was sort of tired of being angry and uh, wanted to take a different approach. And I have to say it was a really transformational experience for me, Uh, not because it changed anything about how I felt about women's reproductive rights, but it changed everything about how I felt about people who disagree with me on it. Mm. It was so important to have the opportunity to really hear people speak from their own perspective and their values and experiences rather than evaluating their conclusions through my context. Wow. And I mean, do you feel that that still holds up um, as we look, for example, to where we are now with the 2020 election? Yes, it absolutely does. Uh, This idea of being curious about and listening to people from their own uh, perspective is really key to what we can do, I think, to reach across the divide uh, now as well as then. Well, tell me a little bit about this book and what you hope to accomplish. Sure. So after the 2016 election, it was pretty clear that we were divided, but also that this division was really affecting us. It was affecting our relationships uh, with our family and our friends and our coworkers. But honestly, it's also affecting our health. Our stress uh, about political conflict has increased um, over this uh, recent time. And I'm a psychologist, and I had this experience of bringing people together, and I wanted to do something helpful. So I started by creating a resource that I call the flow chart that will resolve all political conflict in our country, um, because I'm optimistic like that. (laughs) And (laughs) so what what I was hoping is that I could help people to be more intentional about whether they get into these conversations and how they go about having these conversations. Um, And spoiler alert, the flowchart has not yet actually resolved all political conflict in our country. It hasn't? You're kidding me. That's what a surprise. (laughs) I'm so disappointed. (laughs) But then I just kept going. So I created a workshop, a two-hour skills-based workshop, because I thought maybe I can support people by giving them the skills that they need to be able to, to do these conversations. And a couple hundred people, mostly on the California Central Coast, went through that uh, workshop, and people still wanted more resources. So mm. that's when I ended up writing the book. What did that, what did that workshop teach you as a facilitator and a researcher? Oh, that's a great question. I I think the thing I learned most, because I would ask people at the beginning of the workshop, what brings you here? What's mm. your motivation right. for, um, for, for being here? And the one I heard most is that people wanted to maintain a relationship with somebody who was important in their lives. But other people wanted to find common ground or wanted to persuade other people. And there are other people who said, I just cannot understand how people think or act or vote as they do. And so all of those brought people there. And I thought, great, people have the motivation. And then, you know, we'll build on that with the skills and then they'll be able to do it. The thing I learned most is that people might want to achieve those goals that that are their original motivation, but also people have more than one want. So people might 
want to maintain a relationship with somebody, but they also might want to express their views and vent and have their views validated. And those things don't necessarily match up in the same conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's huge. And the word that I know that comes up a lot in, in your book and the word that's in my mind as you talk is motivation. Why is it that we want to have these conversations? Is it just to kind of bulldoze over and say, your views are crazy and mine are right? Or is it to really understand and listen? So can you talk a little bit more about that word motivation in here? Sure. It's really important, I think, that people can reflect on themselves and understand what brings them to do this and then make the right choices in terms of how are they best going to get their needs met. Because if, if what you really want is to express your views and have them validated, you might not actually want to have a conversation with somebody who's got different views than you have. You might actually want to go to somebody who agrees with you already, and you can get that need fulfilled there. And then that uh, might actually give you the, um, you know, you, you, you might have your tank filled up then mm -hmm. so that you could go to somebody who's got a different view and have a different kind of conversation with them. Right. Although, as you say that, I think, gosh, the more we do that, of course, right, uh, the more we stay in our bubbles um, if we don't take that second step of reaching out, which I know is what's happening right now. And I know the media plays a really big role in this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The media and, and social media, I think, have gotten us uh, to a very difficult place where mostly when people think about uh, dialogue across political lines, they're, they're thinking about what they see on TV with people who are, you know, it's not dialogue, it's really diatribe, where people are just, you know, venting, they're not listening to each other. And they're, they're representing the most extreme views that there are. And, and then social media, sort of people think that they're having conversations, but commenting on other people's posts is not actually a conversation. So we have these ideas of where it's not going to work. But People haven't necessarily seen models of where it does work. And that's what I've really tried to uh, provide. In, in the book, I have this fictitious uh, set of cousins who are having this conversation throughout the book because I want people to see what can it look like if you're actually using some of these tools. So what I'm hearing is that a little response on, on, on Facebook with, you know, the kind of knee-jerk reaction we see every day, that doesn't seem to be helpful, I, I gather. And so I, let's, let's move this into a real-world scenario where somebody is trying to preserve a relationship and is trying to just open up a conversation. Where, what does that look like? So what I recommend is starting out by reaching out to somebody and letting them know what your intent is. You know, I, I know we've had some conflict over this in the past, but our relationship is really important and I would like to have a different kind of conversation and I want to understand more where you're coming from. You know, so just starting by letting them know that this, this conversation is not going to be maybe what past ones have been mm. like. And then there are a couple of key skills that are, um, that, that are important to actually um, making sure that you're understanding somebody and helping them to feel understood. And listening is probably the, the most important one of those. Um, and there, there's a certain type of listening that can be helpful. Uh, we might think about it as listening to understand rather than listening to respond. Mm -hmm. so, so when somebody speaks, rather than uh, countering it with a different view that you have. First, um, share with them, share back with them what you heard. Reflect what they've said so that they know that you've heard them and also so that you know that you got it right so that they can correct you if you're off base. This reminds me so much of, of kind of great psychotherapy work or I think of Carl Rogers, the great humanist psychologist. I mean, this is kind of the foundation of how we let people know that we are really listening to what they're saying. And I think it's a really powerful tool. Exactly. And I have been teaching listening for decades now uh, at UCSB. And so I, I know that people can learn how to do it. And I also know how incredibly powerful it is and how, how it can be really healing if we're doing it right. So the first step, it sounds like, is, is, is listening. It's, it's repeating back. It's acknowledging the position. Where do you go after that? So it's also helpful to get somebody to elaborate more on what their thinking is about things. It turns out that elaboration doesn't only help us to understand better where they're coming from, but actually the more we all elaborate, the more we can recognize where 
we might not be so completely extremely different from each other that there if we're not just going with the slogans if we're actually getting to what's underneath that we might have some more common values um, and and uh, and and common desires in mind so so yeah that elaboration can be really helpful. well there's something I know in your book that I think is a really powerful notion which is I think you, you know you've said that we see others as more extreme than they really are which I think is an important statement Yes, this is absolute human nature, that we see other people as more extreme. We also see them as, we, we like to think of ourselves as being very logical, our ideas being very well-founded, and we're likely to see other people as irrational, even unkind. And it turns out that that's just something that we tend to do as people. It's a sort of fundamental error that we have in our thinking. But the great news is that once we know that, we can correct for it. We can, we've got these distorted perceptions, but if we actually have somebody in front of us who we can talk to and learn more about where they're coming from, and, and if we approach that with that kind of curiosity and genuine interest, then it can help to uh, resolve that error that we make. And so, for example, when you would sit in these, in these workshops that you were hosting, were, were people surprised to find out that they had more common ground, that they, than, more, more so than they thought, I guess? So in the workshops that I would do, it was really building the skills to be able to have the dialogue. And it wasn't necessarily sort of setting people up with other people who had different views. Right. But there are, there are a lot of different groups that are doing that right now. What, what people told me they learned the most in the workshop is that they were really bad listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Right, of course. <laughs> that, that actually learning to do it, they said, oh, I see where, you know, it's really hard for me to just sit quietly and hear somebody's perspective. Um, and we weren't even talking about politics. It's just talking about, do you like cats or dogs or what are your dessert choices? <laughs> and people have a hard time just with even those simpler things. So I always recommend that people start with kind of low stakes situations like that and 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 build those, those muscles um, to be able to uh, have the more difficult conversations. Well, so let's say you're able to kind of engage in, I think, you know, we also refer to this sometimes as active listening, of really being mm -hmm. present in listening. And, and then you're able to kind of get into maybe common ground or understand more nuance of where they're coming from. At what point do you feel that someone can then begin to share their own perspective or open up the next stage in a dialogue? Sure. And I think, you know, people will get a sense of when they've really heard from another person. And once you've heard another person, they're going to be more interested in your views also. Mm -hmm. And so what I always suggest is that when you, when, when that shift happens and you're sharing your perspectives, that you stay away from sharing stats and slogans and you really focus on stories. And so sharing your own story about how you developed a certain perspective is so much more powerful than just sharing the, the perspective itself and talking about what are your experiences, what are your values that got you there um, is a much more effective way of uh, expressing your perspective. That seems so true to me because I, I know when, when, when people get together and have these conversations, there's this, there's this thought that I, I can back up my argument with something I heard on MSNBC or CNN mm -hmm. or something, but that no longer re really works because even those, those institutions feel so polarized. They feel like something we can't touch and trust necessarily in a kind of conversation with two people. Well, and not only, you know, if you, if you get to the stories, not only are you going to have a more successful dialogue, you're actually going to have a more interesting one. I even find that in conversations with people I agree with these days, I don't just want to hear them rehash everything that they've already heard in all the analyses mm. of the news, even if I agree with them. I would much rather hear something different. I'd much rather hear sort of, you know, what's going on in their own lives around this issue. And so I think that whether we're talking across political lines or, you know, with people who agree with us, it, we can really have a richer dialogue if we, if we make it more personal. There's something about the power of storytelling, isn't there, that always seems mm -hmm. to connect here. What, what is that? I mean, it's almost like this is hardwired into us as this kind of connective tissue. Well, you know, I think that there's a piece of it where you can you can argue you can argue research, you can argue yeah. argue you know, you can argue, you know, perspectives on things, but you can't argue someone's experience. And so I I think that 
the the storytelling is a really rich um, way of connecting with somebody on a uh, just on a deeper level. What happens if you just kind of start feeling uncomfortable in these conversations? I mean, I think part of this has to be monitoring yourself in the process and and kind of I don't know taking a breath, trying to stay calm. Does that fit into this too somehow? Oh, it has to because, you know, even just imagining having these conversations is stressing people out. Mm. And so so being in the conversations themselves, people's buttons can really get pushed because, you know, these are our deeply held beliefs. These are uh, these are issues that affect our lives and our communities. And so we do have to have some way of dealing with what what happens when our emotions uh, are are up. And so the first thing is to be aware of that. So notice what's going on for yourself. And and you can even pay attention to what's going on in your body. Are you um are you feeling flushed? Are your muscles tense? Are you is your breath getting shallow? And those are all signs that we are responding to threat. Uh, and and our bodies are built to respond to threats like saber-toothed tigers. Right. But it turns out that we respond to all threats in that same way, even if the threat is somebody who's, you know, speaking in a loud voice. And what's interesting, I think, is that there's this threat that we might be wrong, or there's some part of human nature where we want to be, we want to be right, and we want to have our, you know, our, our positions validated. So how do you remove the, the kind of intellect and the ego, maybe more importantly, in conversations like these? Well, I think that it can be helpful to approach this with more of a sense of curiosity. Right. So one of the things that I learned about when I was writing the book was research on intellectual humility. And I, I think about this as being righteous without being self-righteous. So you can hold uh, even extreme values and views, but you can still be interested in, curious about, and respectful of other people's perspectives. And and going in with that kind of openness, it turns out, can really be helpful not only to the dialogue, but just, I think, helpful in terms of, you know, not getting so riled up by uh, the conversation. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. And uh, I, I know that, that, that empathy really factors in here as well, doesn't it? Sure, absolutely. I think empathy, you know, a lot of empathy is understanding someone else. And so the more we understand them, then the the less likely it is that that we will see what their view is as a threat, you know, alone, that we will also be able to sort of see them as whole people. And I, I want to get back to that question you asked also about what do we do when our buttons get pushed. And um, once once we're aware that it's happening, Things like breathing, taking a deep breath. It turns out we're breathing all the time, so we can take a deep breath and, you know, someone else isn't going to know exactly what we're doing, so we can do that right in the moment. But also physically grounding ourselves just by noticing the feeling of our feet on the floor or even touching our own hand uh, can be helpful to get us out of that sort of fight, flight, or freeze cycle. Right. Yeah. Well, do you ever come across kind of a big difference in personalities when you do this type of work that some people, I think, genuinely find it harder to show patience, civility, or kindness? They uh, believe in being forthright, shooting from the hip. That's expression we use a lot, too. Um, is, is there some kind of a human nature question in this, too, that, that some of us are just programmed differently for this type of work? There are personality differences. There's also cultural differences and gender differences. There's a lot of differences in terms of communication. And there's also power differences that can make that, you know, that can mm. affect how we have these conversations. It can, even if it's not our natural tendency to use these skills, the more flexible we are in terms of what kinds of skills we use in different situations, then then the better off we are. So it doesn't have to be what comes naturally to you, um, but it can it can still be a skill that you learn, 
and that can be useful in these circumstances. I didn't even think about that question of kind of power imbalances in, in mm-hmm. conversations. Maybe you come from a, a patriarchy and nobody wants to question the views of, of the dominant male or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But certainly that, that seems to be something that could be very present in these conversations. Absolutely. And, and in the workplace, I always recommend, you know, don't, don't try to force these conversations on people who you know, are your subordinates, you know, people who you supervise or have any authority over. Because I hear people tell stories about, you know, oh, my supervisor, you know, was going on about this, and I didn't feel like I could say anything. And so it's really uncomfortable for people. But even outside of those specific structures, there's obviously power differences just in terms of our our identities and our experiences um, out in the world. So I think it's important to be aware of those things and aware of how it might affect other people to have these conversations. Uh, Certainly around, you know, everything that's been going on in our country with racial injustice um, and Black Lives Matter, there have been a lot, this this has been a, a really challenging topic for us to have conversations about. And what I, what I always suggest is, you know, I, I really try to talk to the allies in terms of like, what can you do in these conversations? Mm-hmm. Because I think if, if this is a conversation about something that affects your life directly, um, it's, it's a lot harder to maintain your equilibrium, or it can be a lot harder to maintain your equilibrium in these conversations. So I really think that that's where allies can have such a great role in terms of reaching out to folks. But you know, it's interesting because I do see a lot of people, um, a lot of white people who are, um, who want to be allies, and but they're also saying, well, I'm unfriending all of my racist relatives. And I think, oh, no, mm. what, what an opportunity you have to reach people who uh, people of color might not have that access to. So I think it, it can be really important for us to think about what, what are our intentions and how can we use our privilege and our power um, to, to have these conversations where other people might not be able to. Well, we're just about out of time here, but I wanted to end with a personal question. Um, I, I know that you've been very influenced by Buddhism and by a meditation practice as well. And I just wonder how that has impacted some of the work you do and some of these conversations that we're talking about today. I, I have no question that my Buddhist practice has helped me to be able to stay grounded in, when when things are difficult and also really help to open up my heart with compassion. Um, but I don't think Buddhism is the only thing that can do that. There are a lot of different uh, spiritual and religious practices that can do that, as well as just, you know, people's, uh, you know, desire to be connected to or empathic with other people. But uh, yeah, for, for me, that uh, that has made a big difference. Well, we've been speaking with Tanya Israel, professor of psychology at UC Santa Barbara. She's the author of Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide. Thank you for this this really interesting conversation today. We appreciate it. Thank you. I've enjoyed it so much. Still to come, as politics pits family, friends, and colleagues against each other, how do we gain empathy and understanding for those with whom we disagree? Two regulars on this program, Pico Iyer and Raja Prana, join us after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Professor Tanya Israel provide a set of tools to help communicate with those across the political divide. Our next guests provide us with a different, more spiritual angle on the issue. They say our political opinions don't define our humanity, and that really knowing someone means cutting to the core of who they are, where there is a lot more common ground than we may think. Pico Iyer is a frequent guest on this show and is the author of a number of books, including The Art of Stillness, Adventures in Going Nowhere. 
and Rajaprana is an author and has been a practicing Hindu Vedanta nun for more than 30 years. She lives and works in the Vedanta Temple in Santa Barbara. Well, Pico Iyer and Rajaprana, welcome back to Life Examined. A great pleasure, as always, Jonathan. Really great pleasure. Thank you, Jonathan. I just want to start with how both of you have been feeling as, as we sit on the edge of, of what some say is the most important election. And though neither of you are perhaps uh, directly politically involved in this, I know you have lots of thoughts about uh, what it means just to be a human right now and to connect with people and about where we are. Uh, Pico Iyer, I, I just I, I wonder what's been going through your mind as we step kind of closer to this moment. Well, this is a dangerous topic to discuss because I think um, it's so easy to get moralistic or judgmental. And I think often our tendency is to say, I'm full of empathy and that guy isn't. Uh, So I think what I often try to remember just is that it's a choice that every one of us individually gets to make every moment. Um, I know many of my friends on the eve of the election uh, are very aggravated by our current president. And they often say that what they don't like about him is that he tweets a lot and he makes reckless pronouncements. And it seems as if he wants everyone to spend their time thinking and talking about him. And so their response on the other side is to spend all their time thinking and talking about him, just what he most wants to do. (laughs) And I don't think that helps them, and I don't think it really helps him either. And I often will say to them, think about Greta Thunberg, think about Pope Francis, think about the Dalai Lama. Instead of getting yourself into a spiral of escalating rage, which is not going to transform the country or the president and is only going to transform you for the worse, you have the choice to look to the future, to what is inspiring, to what is practical, uh, and towards what is actually going to create a better community rather than this um, self-perpetuating spiral of exchanging resentments. So um, wherever you stand on the political divide, and also if you feel badly about um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, um, I think we gain nothing by cursing the people we dislike, uh, and we gain everything by thinking about the world we want to create. Right. Rasha Prana, does that resonate with you as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because when we hate, when we get angry, the person who, who, who we're directing that to doesn't really experience it the way we do. So we are simply making ourselves more unhappy. We just, and it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle because we get angrier, we get more frustrated, we get, it, it just becomes a seething cauldron of, of yuck. <laughs> we just don't, and then we kind of spew it out on other people. And then they're affected by it. It's like these emotions are, are, are actually as contagious as the flu. So we have to really watch out for that and remember that many of our loved ones are actually on the other side of this political divide. And you know what? In the big picture, in the big picture, it's it's political opinions and they come and they go and they come and they go. But we have to be able to love each other as brothers and sisters or no one's going to get anywhere. I, I love that because um, I, I've been thinking our opinions are the least interesting part of ourselves. And just as you were saying, I think most of us are defined much more by what we do than by what we believe. And what you were just saying about our loved ones being on the other side of the divide, I meet so many people who occupy a very different space, spiritually or politically, from myself, and they act with such compassion. It really humbles and instructs me. And I have friends who share all my prejudices, and they don't seem so kind often. And uh, (laughs) we just have to open our eyes to the fact, well, the world isn't binary, uh, that the people who don't agree with us don't necessarily disagree with us. The world is never black or white. And to compress it like that is to do an injustice to the world and to our friends. Right. It, it is indeed, and we also stop ourselves from making friends when we, when we judge so harshly, when we just see sort of a caricature of another human being. Instead of seeing what, what real struggles and what real interests and what real um, goodness that person has within them, we just see whether they're wearing a, a red cap or not. And it's, it's so hurtful for us and hurtful for them too. And we stop ourselves from enjoying and learning so much from other people. I just yesterday I saw a quote, I think, ascribed to Abraham Lincoln, which is that the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. It's, it's really just a matter of seeing that that person has much more in common with us uh, than apart. I, just yesterday, by chance, a friend sent me this beautiful story from the Berkshires just two weeks ago. 
and I hadn't heard about it. Maybe it's celebrated now. But uh, apparently somebody saw um, a Biden-Harris sign in front of a 15-foot stack of hay bales. And he was so enraged that he set it on fire and destroyed the hay. He was quickly apprehended and arrested and taken to prison. And as he was seated in his cell, he got a phone call. And he didn't know who it was from. And it was from the farmer whose land he destroyed. And the farmer said, I, I'm calling you now because I heard that you, my arsonist, um, just lost your 24-year-old son in a motorbike accident. I just want to commiserate oh. with you. And I just realized you must be in a very difficult place, and I can understand you're feeling a lot of rage. So he didn't just extend the hand of forgiveness, but of understanding. And the arsonist, in turn, of course, spoke through all the anger and confusion and grief he was feeling about the loss of his son. And suddenly that moment that could so easily be a silly confrontation became something constructive. Mm -hmm. And um, and now that same farmer has put out a sign, in fact, not saying uh, Biden-Harris anymore, but love, unity, justice. It speaks to, um, again, my sense that each one of us has that chance to rise to the invitation at every moment. There was a beautiful book a few years ago called The True American. Same thing, a Bangladeshi man who in the wake of uh, 9-11 was the victim of a hate crime by somebody who maimed and almost killed him, a self-professed American terrorist. And once the terrorist uh, was in prison, all the Bangladeshi man tried to do was lobby for his uh, liberation and to make sure that he wouldn't be on death row and, and working to help his oppressor. Mm-hmm. Um, and these stories are all around, but of course it's easy to concentrate on the stories of divisiveness instead. There was a there was a Puranic story I just ran into last week, and it really struck me. One of those very ancient Indian stories where um, Arjuna is in the forest, and Arjuna is the Krishna's best friend. And he's considered the, the best warrior in the world, the best archer in the world, and he's going to protect the entire world from evil. So he's deep in the forest, and he runs into this monster. It has a peacock head. It's got the neck of a rooster it's got the, the belly of a lion, and it's got a hump of a bull, and it has the tail of a snake, and it's got arms from elephants and human... And he So Arjuna looks at him and goes, I have to kill this monster. He raises his bow, pulls it back, and then thinks, just because I don't recognize this doesn't mean it's a monster. I do not even know who he is. So he lowers his bow, and at that moment... He transforms, the monster transforms into a human, raising his hand in benediction, said, Arjuna, this was a test of your wisdom and compassion. It was God testing him. So I think we're being tested all the time, like Arjuna. It's like, you know, we just see the other, and then we just aim and shoot. (laughs) Instead of, it's like, who are you? Who are you? Oh, my God, you're just such a wonderful person. There's a farmer at Farmer's Market. I totally adore the, the most compassionate, loving thoughtful and quietly generous person you would know uh, who educates the the farm workers families who, who work with him he's one of those red hat man I, I I would he would give the cloak off his back to anyone a thousand times over and and I and I'm thinking how many people like me would have judged him unless they knew him better and we do this to, to ourselves all the time it's like stop what are we missing in life Sorry, that was my long aside. That, that was an absolutely beautiful story, I think. And thank you for sharing that from, from that ancient tradition about seeing through the other. Um, Pico Iyer, I, I, I feel like you might have something to respond. Well, hallelujah for one. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Virginia Woolf has this wonderful line. If you really look at somebody carefully, how she brushes her hair, the tear forming at the corner of her eye, how she smiles... It's impossible to dislike her. And Graham Greene, following upon that, has this wonderful sentence, hate is a failure of the imagination. And actually, he there's a true life story that goes perfectly with the story that uh, Vrajapana just told, which is that during World War II, Graham Greene was asked by the British government to produce some propaganda against the Germans. So he promptly, being a novelist whose job is to understand and feel with the other, <laughs> wrote a story about some a British soldier um, killing a German soldier and striding across the grass in triumph. And when he gets to the dead body, he finds a wallet and he opens it up and there is a picture of the two-year-old son and the wife who are waiting for the German soldier back in Germany. And all he can think is, this man has much more in common than I 
with myself mm. than apart. Um, I feel exactly what he's feeling. He's never done anything to harm me. I don't know why we're fighting this war. Um, the so-called other is probably my brother in disguise or the god in disguise, right. as Vajraprana was saying. Right. You know, the great danger is to put ideology before um, humanity. I've been to North Korea a couple of times and I can see what results that creates. So it's up to each of us individually, as really Vajrapana was saying, <laughs> to put humanity before I- ideology and, and just to see the human being rather than the red cap, as she was saying so wonderfully. Yeah. And there's something I think, Pico, I'm sure that you would agree with me on about the power of storytelling in all of this, which breaks through ideology often. And I know you're someone who studied Graham Greene and many of the great writers before, but uh, breaking through uh, the caricature often requires great questions, understanding where they come from, where they start from, right? It's the writer's job and it's the reader's delight. That's what all books are about. You're putting yourself in the shoes, in the self and in the sufferings of somebody radically different from yourself. You're suddenly remembering what it is to be um, a, a slave escaping a plantation in the 19th century or Thomas Cromwell or even Iago. Um, but you're right. I think that's the beauty of, of, of the imagination and the written um, word. I remember in the late 1990s when suddenly radical Islam became our number one enemy. I thought to myself, I'm a Hindu by birth, on the other side of the fence from my Muslim brothers. I'm living in the United States, which is demonizing Islam. My job as a reader and a writer is to spend four years steeping myself in Islam and try to see how the world looks through Islamic eyes. And I can never do it 100%, but I will never regret the attempt. Better at least to try that. Uh, I know my own prejudices much too well, and I only have something to gain by, or by, by seeing how the world looks from the other side of the street. Or if I'm having a fight with a friend, write a story from the friend's perspective of how she sees me. Um, that's, that's the gift we've been given with the imagination. Yeah. Rajaprana, I, I wonder if you can share any other examples of your tradition of, of, uh, of the importance of tolerance, the importance of empathy. What, what comes to your mind? Uh, you know, what actually comes to my mind is a verse from the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the, the sacred scriptures of the, the Hindu tradition, where it says, um, the, the greatest yogi is not the guy in the yoga pants, obviously. It's the greatest yogi is the one who burns with the bliss and suffers the sorrow of every being within his or her own heart and looks upon pleasure and pain of all beings as his or her own. I mean, that's, that's his samatvan yoga uchate, this evenness of mind, that if we could really work towards that, and I think about it all the time because it's so easy to just get identified with those things that change, get identified with those things which um, are so small in the big picture and, and which limit us and limit the people that we're looking at. And so to just remember, like, can we really feel for another person that sort of profound empathy? I know that I was been very inspired by um, the work that our order does, and if, like for example, during partition, when our our monks were out there and being uh, doing work with the Muslims who were caught on the other side of the divide, and were protecting them, and the man who later became the president of the order had people like an angry crowd looking for these 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 poor Muslim men who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the crowd came to him and they said, do you know where he is? He said, look, he's a monk, right? He's going to tell the truth. He said, oh, no, haven't seen him. And probably went that way. And he said, later he said, I proudly lied. <laughs> he saved their lives. And on the other hand, he and the Swami who later became our head Swami in Boston were saved by by Muslims who hid them when when they were on another side of the border. So when you come down to it, it's like we have to be here to protect each other. We have to be because we shouldn't. Religion is just, it can be so much just dogma instead of that real feeling for another person as the embodiment of, of, of love, of consciousness, of, of joy, of, of, of light. If we see something else first instead of that, we're in trouble. When I listen to you speaking about the embodiment of evenness and, and feeling the sufferings of all mankind, um, of course, I think of somebody who's a friend to Jonathan and you and all of us, uh, the Dalai Lama. 
And yes. I think about how when you go into a Tibetan Buddhist temple and you see all these fearsome devils and horrible monsters, you realize that's a representation of ourselves. And they know that the only big yeah. enemy, that Mara, mm. the devil figure, is the rage, anger, and confusion inside yourself. And as I say that, I'm suddenly remembering one moment when I was traveling across Japan with the Dalai Lama in the bullet train. And I just read a book about Mao Zedong. And in the book, Mao Zedong was quoted as saying, um, if I say a cat is black and it's white, it's black. If I say that the sky is down, not up, it's down. If I say a famine is a great success and it's not, it's great. In other words, my word goes. And this is what created such misery for so many people in China. And as soon as I said that, uh, His Holiness grabbed my arm and he said, never, never say anything against Mao Zedong. The Dalai Lama saying that about Mao Zedong, who had said religion is poison, who had tried to destroy Tibet and who had forced the Dalai Lama into exile and kept him away from his people for more than 60 years now. He refused to say a single thing against him or even to hear one thing said against him. Mm. And, and what he said mm. to me, of course it stayed ever since, is always criticize the action, never the actor. You can say that that kind of delusion is poisonous and terrible, and it is, but the the person himself or herself is always redeemable. So don't say anything bad about the person. And just to be able to separate the actions or sp words we disagree with from the person who's saying them, who still has the capacity to see beyond those perhaps wrong-headed words or actions, has really been clarifying for me. You know, but what that's sort of, I want to kind of go into another area which brings these whole things up. And I think what we really have to address is fear. Because I think it's really fear that makes us behave in these sort of ways. I think this sort of, uh, I certainly see this with approaching with the election, but I think this, the, the anger, the, the frustration, the hatred, all that really is, is, comes down to fear. And when you mentioned the Dalai Lama, it just reminded me that, of that, that statement of the Buddha that our greatest enemy is our own mind. That it's the, the enemies outside are nothing. It's really that, that fear locked in our own minds that becomes the monster that we can't deal with. And that's what we really have to address, is really addressing our fears and, and approaching life as like the great mystery that, that offers us so much. And that's a wonderful way of taking the other um, out of the picture because we can project a million things upon the person who's different from us or thinks differently. But as you say, really, we have to bring it back to ourselves and that's where we have the power to change. It's very hard to change somebody else, as you were saying at the beginning. But every moment we have the chance to change ourselves. Yeah, Pico, I, 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 love, I love all the examples, but that of the Dalai Lama really fits in here. I I wonder if there's anything else you can add about taking almost that Buddhist perspective in this conversation. Well, as ever, uh, our friend Rajapana really put her finger on it, I think, talking about fear and, and un uncertainty. Um, the Dalai Lama famously always says that his enemy is his teacher, and he's so grateful because he, we all learn more from the people who oppose us than the ones who, so to speak, validate us. I remember one time I was with him in Hiroshima. We were walking up a slope to a little temple, and a young woman, I think perhaps Chinese, strode in front of us. and She said, Lama, Lama, I have to say something to you very aggressively. So uh, the Dalai Lama's bodyguard swept her aside. And we went into the temple, and we just sat there quietly for 10 or 15 minutes, and the Dalai Lama was meditating and praying and blessing the temple. And I could hear her shouting outside, and I thought, my goodness, what's going to happen when we emerge? When we did emerge, to my amazement, the Dalai Lama told the bodyguards, please bring that young woman towards me. Don't get rid of her. Bring her right next to me. And he cradled her face in his hands, and he looked deep into her oh. eyes. And I think one oh. way or another, he just tried to communicate... I'm your friend. I have nothing against you. We probably have, again, much more in common than apart. And honestly, I don't know if, um, if that achieved anything, but it certainly was it such a different way of confronting the situation. If somebody were to heckle me, I'd probably race to the exit or mm. you know, act very defensively. But he was reaching out, and the only way to defuse the bomb in herself or potentially in himself was to, to meet face to face and to find what their common ground was. It's very moving. That's beautiful. Well, Vrashaprana, I, I wonder is if, if you had any, any thoughts or advice for those that are listening that are interested, I think in, in contemplation and meditation, ways to kind of sit with this and to, to check in with ourselves, to breathe and to um, uh, kind of work on a lot of the things that we're talking about. What, what kind of, what advice would you have? 
I would say to turn off the damn devices, <laughs> stop listening to the news, and just enjoy some quiet. And then try to think of that divinity within themselves and to really... Uh, you know, when I first came to Santa Barbara, I arrived in the middle of my sophomore year, and I was I, I, I was really given a hard time. It's not a great time to arrive. And so I'd literally try to see the divine within the heart within with other people. And it just totally, it really changed my experience from one of being angry and fearful into like, oh, I can do this. This, is, this, can, this can be kind of fun. Where you kind of definitely visualize and try to feel that presence of divinity in other people. And then when, we're, when we can enjoy some quiet, sit with the contents of our own mind. Don't be judgmental about it. Don't beat yourself up for being ang angry or resentful or fearful or I shouldn't be feeling this afraid or I shouldn't be this hard on other people. It's like, it's okay, you're a human being, imagine. Then really sit with it and then just realize that that's external to who we are. We're not those emotions. We're that deep, loving, infinite, divine reality that's birthless, deathless, unchanging. That's who we are. That's who everybody is. We think... We're we're just all we're just all in actors in a play playing our different parts. Switch, you know, we're all on Halloween all every single day of the year. It's like we're all wearing these things, but there's only one infinite divinity, and we're the ones who make that separation. We don't have to do that. We can recognize that divinity in others, and if we recognize, if we give ourselves the opportunity to see it in ourselves, we will then see it in others. If we don't see it in ourselves, we are not going to see it in anybody else either. Pico Iyer, I, I wonder too if you if you have thoughts on on how we kind of actualize some of this in, in in any ways that come to your mind. I wonder. Well, I'm in entirely with Rajapana in terms of turn off the devices and turn off the news and look at the radiance around you if you're in Southern California. But also, as I was listening to her talking just now, I was thinking, you know, suffering is an equal opportunity mm -hmm. employer. I'm currently living with my aged mother here in Santa Barbara, and we have lots and lots of caregivers. And sometimes I'll come back and I'll think, why didn't the caregiver you know, screw the top on the peanut butter jar correctly? Or how come she was one minute late? <laughs> then I'll hear from the, uh, the boss of the caregiving agency, so-and-so just lost her daughter yesterday. Mm. So-and-so has just had to fly out of the country because there's been an emergency. And it just jolts me out of my kind of self-centered blindness, thinking they're suffering things that I don't begin to know about. And in fact, they're professional and gracious enough not to tell me all the things they're going through. But as soon as they leave this house, they're dealing with things a thousand times more than, than I have to. And I'm seeing one thousandth of the picture, and probably the most trivial one, and, and judging them on the basis of the peanut butter lid when they have death <laughs> waiting them at home. Right, I mean, right. again, Aww. all my own silliness, really. Right. Well, we're, we're, we're nearly out of time, but I, I want to just open this up one more time to both of you. Uh, Vrajaprana, any, any last thoughts? As I know that whatever happens on Tuesday, uh, there's going to be a lot of angry people, a lot of happy people, and certainly I don't know if this country will feel any more connected after that moment. So I, I, I just want to go back to you one more time here as, as you think about this notion of empathy and maybe this, uh, some kind of a deeper reunification. I, I th you're so right, Jonathan. It's something I think we've all been concerned about, that even when the election results come in, however they come in, there's going to be a lot of people who are, who are going to feel like they've lost and they've gotten the short end of the stick and other people have gotten more. And I think we just have to understand that I think every individual should be able to reach out to people who don't agree with them and just try to enjoy their company and try to listen to them, try to listen to why, why, what their experience in life is and why they're so unhappy or, or just why they feel they've been shafted and just have, have some sense of sympathy and kindness and do what we can to try to meet in the middle. We've absolutely got to, this country won't work unless we all make some compromises that address each other's dignity. We don't have to have our way all the time because we, as Americans, we sort of think we're entitled to what we want when we want to have it then and everyone else be damned because I'm free, I'm an American. It's like, no, we have to have more respect for the community as a large. Like Pico, you were saying like when you're in Japan, there's no question about people wearing masks. Everybody wears masks because, we, because there's a sense of a larger community that we're all responsible for each other. So I think if we really take that idea of community to heart, 
that we're more than just our own ideas with people who agree with us. We're a community who, who should value people who see things in a different way and, and appreciate it and, and actually in, in, enjoy it as much as we can. But be there. We should be there for everybody. If we, if we lose, if we think, okay, well, all right, I guess, I guess it's going to go this way. I did my part. I tried. I did what I thought was responsible. And it, it doesn't work out the way we want. Then it's like, okay, Divine Mother, it's in your hands. We don't run the universe. Imagine. We actually don't run the universe. So we have to just, you know, say, well, thy will be done. We did our part. We tried. That's it. Pico, to you also one last time, um, uh, picking up on that theme here of, of what this is all going to mean in, in just a few days. As Vajrapana was suggesting, I, I always find when you think you're in the right, that's a sure sign you're in the wrong. <laughs> Last year, I was lucky enough to be teaching some teenagers back in the East Coast, and there was one student who really seemed to be a mischief maker. And then one day, I picked up a campus newspaper, and I found he'd written an article about how he went to Mass every Sunday precisely because he was a non-believer. He, didn't, he wasn't a Christian at all, but he was so impressed by the open-mindedness and tolerance of a Christian roommate, and he thought, well, I shouldn't just write this off. Something is going on there, and I could probably learn from the discipline of, of observing something every Sunday evening. And if my Christian roommate is so tolerant, why am I so intolerant towards him? So he wrote this beautiful piece about why you would go to Mass as a non-believer. Mm. And I had another uh, student in that same class, again, barely out of his teens, who was a, um, a very charming a gay athlete and a fervent Trump supporter, regardless of what our president thinks about gay rights. And I gave as an assignment uh, an excerpt from President Obama's book, Dreams from My Father, and I was braced for what would happen when he read it. And when we came to class, he instantly put his hand up and he said, I don't agree at all with President Obama. I would never vote for him, but his book is amazing. And instead of reading the 20-page excerpt, I read all 450 pages because I thought he was so noble as a human being and such a beautiful writer and such an understanding global citizen. And so when I came out of that class at the end of the semester, I thought, here are two people who are 19, 20 years old, and they've had the courage and, and wisdom to look across the aisle and beyond their prejudices and try for a while to inhabit the position exactly different from their own. How can I fail to try to live up to what they've been teaching me? Mm. Well, Pico Iyer, thank you so much, as always, for joining us on Life Examined. We really appreciate the time. Thank you, Jonathan. And Vrasha Prana, thank you so much for the time today as well. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for making this possible. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.